How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 302 of X-Lapsed. And today, well, today is one of those days. Uh, it's one of those days that I think we in the biz refer to as a bittersweet. It's um, a day I've been equal parts uh, looking forward to and uh, dreading. Because, uh, well, we're wrapping up a, a very, very special series today. And uh, as much as I couldn't wait to find out how this one played out, I also... Well, I also just didn't want it to end, so uh, we are uh, we're going to end it today, unfortunately, or you know, fortunately, depending on your point of view. Um, this is one that has been, um, you know, uh, it's been one of those highlights of this program for me. Uh, every month, uh, I always look forward to uh, saying Italians Day, and today, at least. As of this recording, this is the last time we're going to get that opportunity. Uh, with all that said, how about we just get into it here? This is Hellions number 18 of 18, February 2022 cover date. The story is called The Losing End, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Z. Carlos and Steven Segovia. Colors, Rain Barreto. Letters, VCs, Ariana Mar. Designs, Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits, Basso, White, Sabolski, cover price, $5. This is a... Uh, that's not a double-sized issue, but it is a uh, bigger-than-usual issue. And this one went on sale December the 8th of 2021. And we open in the Quiet Council's chambers as uh, the movers and shakers of Krakoa have gathered to discuss, you know, what to do about the Hellions. Now, it has been a minute since we covered issue number 17, but in that issue, Wildchild uh, killed a couple of uh, officers, park rangers, uh, a couple of humans in cold blood. Now, Mr. Sinister is here to make the case for sending all of the Hellions into the pit in order to go chill with Sabretooth. Now, if you recall, he's got some sinister secrets, of course, and the Hellions are quite a bit more aware and knowledgeable of them than they were in the beginning. So, clear to say, it would benefit Sinister greatly to just, you know, wipe them off the board with one fell swoop. Next, our heroes are escorted in for their trial, and this is a trial that won't require a five-issue miniseries, so how about that? Uh, then again, um, there really wasn't much of a trial in that other book, at least not for the first four issues of it. Maybe the last issue will surprise us. Uh, the team of Hellions we see here are Wildchild, Orphan Maker, Psylocke, Grey Crow, and Havoc, and all but Psylocke have been shackled. Now, Psylocke, being one of the great captains of Krakoa, Maybe she's getting a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe she's just acting as an escort. In any event, they are now here for their trial. But first, double page spread of roll, call, and cred. We got a pretty big roster today. 
Havoc, Psylocke, Grey Crow, Wildchild, Orphan Maker, Nanny, Empath, Professor X, Magneto, Emma Frost, Nightcrawler, Mr. Sinister, Storm, Sebastian Shaw, Call Me Kate, Mystique, and Exodus. Next up, we hop into Flashback Land to see the Hellions taken into custody by the X-Men. Cyclops and company uh, really only seem to be here to take Orphan Maker in, but, well, this quickly escalates into a full-blown team-versus-team melee. Now, Psylocke attempts to impart on Scott that, you know, Orphan Maker, he's just a kid, and, and he's very, very scared. Unfortunately, that's not Scott's problem. You see, he's got a job to do. And uh, young Pete's actions have led to something of an international incident. Now, Quanon asks if there's, like, any way around, you know, an immediate exile into the pit. Is there any way you can assure me that this is, that, that that's not how this is going to wind up? Unfortunately, that's not Scott's call, so he can't make any guarantees. And so, Grey Crow punches him in the face. Uh, now, before we know it, they're all trading blows. Until Empath puts a stop to it using his mental hoodoo. Now, this scene is, uh, I'm going to say, well done a lot during this episode, probably. Exceptionally well done. Because we have a fight, and then the action grinds to a halt, and everybody looks at Jean, suspecting that she's the one behind stopping the fighting. And she's like, hey, don't look at me. And then it's revealed to be Manuel. We hop back to the present here, where Emma makes it clear that the Hellion's attack was stopped by Empath in service to the Council. So, uh, old Manny's uh, getting himself some brownie points here. Uh, Too bad he's not winning himself any friends, and more on that in a bit. It's clear at this point that Havoc knows what Empath's true role on the Hellions team was. Now, if you recall, we learned that he was placed there by Emma Frost as a mole. Now, one of the things that he did was cause Alex to give in to his violent urges. This is to say all of his craziness, or much of his craziness, or maybe the extent of his craziness during this volume was the fault of Empath on, you know, behest of Emma. Now, the team learned this an issue or two ago, but Havoc didn't seem to know the full scope. It seems he does know it now, though. And he begins, uh, you know, reading her the riot act there, (laughs) calling her out right in front of the council. Unfortunately for him, this doesn't get the opportunity to be fleshed out, um, because Sinister takes this opportunity to stand up and bid that they chuck his entire dysfunctional team into the pit of exile. Magneto's like, hey, provide the grounds and we'll do it. You know, what grounds do you, uh, do you plead this on? And Sinister recalls Nanny keeping that uh, baby right bot and claims that that spits in the face of the Krakoan law respect this sacred land. Sinister may- then makes the mistake of cockily questioning how good of a mother Quanon could ever be, which seems, uh, you know, mean and kind of out of nowhere, but it does get him a well-deserved punch to the face. Xavier orders her to desist, but Storm requests that she be allowed to get one more shot in, and Exodus agrees. And so, Psylocke gives Sinister a bit of chin music. Sinister once again cries out for the Hellions to be chucked in the hole. Now, Emma's like, dude, stop talking. So she suggests that they just muzzle old Essex here, and Call Me Kate seconds that motion. Uh, Sinister refuses to be muzzled. However, we jump ahead a few moments and see that, well... He's muzzled, and I'm doing this scene absolutely zero service here because it's very, very funny. It's uh, that Wells comic timing that we've come to love and expect in this book. It's like, I will not be muzzled, and it's like seconds later, and he's muzzled. It's really, it's really, really good stuff here. So, we got the pre-rambles out of the way, right? So it's time for the council to uh, pass their verdict. 
And just as Orphan Maker is about to be declared guilty, Nightcrawler stands up to say a few words. Now, if you've been following Hellions, and of course you definitely should have been, you will likely recall that Nightcrawler has been quoted in just about every single issue. He, he was the voice of our mostly blank quote pages, right? And he will get another before the end of this issue. Now, Kurt, as we're all aware, has been portrayed as being like the lone voice of reason uh, on Krakoa, right? He's able to see through the various Krakoan facades, and he actually offers up a philosophical debate and discussion here. His view of the Hellions differs greatly from those of his peers on the council. So he's up, he's standing there, all eyes are on him, and he attempts to plead his case. Now, he suggests that the Hellions, Orphan Maker in particular for this discussion, should be able to call Krakoa their home. He calls the Hellions a symbol, something of a proof of concept that Krakoa is such an enlightened and forward-thinking society that they don't just dispose of those who they deem to be problematic. He goes the route of referring to any of Peter's maladies as being more a form of mental illness than, you know, an intrinsic bloodthirst, which, I mean, I, I don't think we can argue that. Um, Peter's uh, attack or, uh, I guess, murder of those uh, two humans, that wasn't out of a bloodthirst. That was a, uh, you know, a snap judgment. Of course, you know, we're not excusing it, but... There's something different about the way Peter conducts himself than, say, a Sabretooth. You know, Sabretooth is the other one who was sent down to the hole. He was clearly a bloodthirsty guy. Whereas Peter here was more of a reactionary uh, measure here. So, Nightcrawler, back to him. He talks a bit more about one of the unifying factors that the Hellions share, and that factor is trauma. Now, that's a huge motif for this book, right? And, you know, they've all seen some stuff, basically. Of course, uh, it's hard to view this in a vacuum so much because it kind of ignores the fact that pretty much everyone on Krakoa has seen some stuff. I'm pretty sure everybody in this room right now, the Quiet Council room, not, you know, the room you're listening to the show in, except Storm, has been literally dead at least once. But, you know, the point he's trying to make here is well taken. Trauma plus mental illness... Not a good thing. But what he's trying to impart here is that it's also not something that cannot be treated. It's something that can be treated if they, you know, make the effort to do so. Now, this causes Xavier and Magneto to briefly take pause. Briefly take pause. A single panel. <laughs> then Magneto simply says, you know, that's all well and good. But without laws, there can't be a society. After which, Xavier's like, sorry to do this, but you're guilty. And, uh, well, you're going to the pit. Grey Crow struggles in his shackles, crying out that Pete's just a kid. And Xavier brushes that off by saying the Orphan Makers had the body and mind of a grown man since his death on Arako. Grey Crow threatens to burn the island down, which, I mean, let's be honest here, that's starting to become like the go-to threat. A little bit trite, in it? Uh, now, Quinan acknowledges that Peter needs help. But this isn't that help. Then, the vines come up and they start to wrap themselves around the Orphan Maker. Grey Crow runs over and caresses Peter's face, assuring him that the Hellions will not stop until they get him out of there. And I tell you, who, when we started this book, who would have ever thought that friggin' Scalp Hunter could be written so well? Could be a, just... I'm going to say this a few times during this episode, but he is literally the heart and soul of this book. I would have bet zero dollars on that. But here we are. 
he is loyal to his team, probably to a fault. <laughs> but uh, him running over to Orphan Maker, who we haven't seen too many scenes of Scalp Hunter, not Scalp Hunter anymore, Grey Crow and Orphan Maker together. But when we have, it's almost been like this, uh, like this paternal relationship, this this fatherly relationship that Grey Crow has with him. Like when they were cleaning guns together, it was like he was. It was like he was engaging in in a little hobby with his son. It was, it was very very well done. So here, seeing that he's powerless to stop this, Great Crow's like, you know what? We will we will save you. We'll get you out. Now before Peter can be sucked down, the trial is interrupted yet again. This time by Nanny. Now Peter's first instinct here, and this is very very telling. He is, uh, like you would think, he's worried about his, uh, his mortality here, or just his ultimate fate. But seeing Nanny, he cries out for her to not be mad at him. And I mean, that is, it's such a, like a quick little throwaway line here, but it just says so much. He sees, you know, his caretaker, the person who he's been trying to win over for a good portion of the series. And his main concern here, when faced with... Whatever it is you face in the hole Is that she might be mad at him She might be upset with him And, uh, well, she's not here to scold him And we'll, you know, we'll go deeper right now Emma reminds Nanny that her most recent resurrection Was not fast-tracked so she could make a spectacle of herself During this trial You see, uh, Nanny was only prioritized Because, well, Nanny herself has a pending trial of her own For harboring that right-bot baby so Nanny has been dead for a minute. We saw this happen a couple episodes ago, a couple issues ago. And thus, she missed out on Peter's recent lashing out. Emma fills her in on the sitch, a little quick and dirty here. Uh, Nanny immediately says that, uh, okay, well, then uh, if Peter's going to the pit, I'm going with him. And Magneto and Xavier tell her that, uh, you know, uh, well, that's noble, but that's not how it works. You see, Peter is going south because he killed humans in cold blood. And so, Nanny has uh, one of the lines of the issue here. She's like, hey, Kitty, how's your mom doing? Mind if I kill her so I get exiled too? And thus stops any arguments about her going with Pete. And, well, that's exactly what happens. The ground opens up, the vines ensnare our heroes, and they're dragged down into the wherever down below. As they're being dragged, Nanny sings Pete the same lullaby she sang him back in the first issue. And I'm really not doing this scene the justice it deserves, because you really just gotta see it. It is a, it is a sad, sad scene. And uh, once the deed is done, we get this wonderfully strong, mostly silent page of just reactions. It's like... The situation is not ideal, right? You know, this is not something that anybody wants to see happen, except for Sinister, of course. And they're just kind of... They're just kind of digesting what they just witnessed here. And it's very, very strong. Very well done. And the silence is ultimately broken by Psylocke, asking the council if, you know, are we done here? You know, can we leave now? And, you know, they're, they're given their dismissal. Grey Crow, Havoc, and Wild Child leave. John apologizes to Alex for having to punch his brother, to which Alex kind of shrugs it off, claiming that Scott's, you know, just got that kind of face. And that's pretty funny. Alex says that, uh, you know, should Greycrow ever need anything in the future, that he should not hesitate to find him. They're a, they're a team, after all. Or rather, 
they were a team. John says that, uh, you know, this place just doesn't feel like home anymore. Krakoa is not a home. Maybe maybe they're not fixable. Maybe their prob- the problems with all these Hellions is something that's just going to be a problem forever. There is no redemption. There is no healing. And uh, he walks off. And from here, we jump into our, like, Animal House epilogues here. We're going to see where everybody's wound up. Our first stop is the Academus Habitat, where Empath is with the original Hellions. And, uh, well, he's being yelled at for being a dick by uh, Cat's Eye, Roulette, and everybody's favorite Hellion, Beef. They dress him down for being a failure. You know, how he talked big here. He thought he was going to be some big hero on this new Hellions team. And also how he let, you know, his team of irregulars uh, steal the Hellion's name in the first place. After being dressed down for a minute, um, Manuel's eyes begin to glow, and next thing we know, his old teammate's tone changes drastically. They're now talking him up, and they seem to really love him. They say the place was not the same without him. Oh, he's a hell of a guy. And as this scene plays out, the camera zooms in on Empath's face, and it's plain to see the immense sadness in his eyes. And we've talked a lot about Segovia's facials, especially as it pertains to Empath, at least of late. And here's another just knocked, slammed out of the park. Um, You can almost feel Empath's sadness here, an emptiness inside him. It's truly, truly a beautiful thing here. And it's like all the noise kind of... Because there are word balloons in these panels here, but you almost can't even see them. You know, I mean, you can see them. This isn't like some artistic trick. They're there. But you're so focused on the sadness in Empath's face here that all of the dialogue here is, like, rendered into a murmur. I mean, it's something that I didn't think was possible with uh, sequential art. But I was so hyper-focused on the just the despair and sadness on Empath's face like, and maybe I'm projecting a bit onto him here, but he knows that, that the job that he's been given is now over. You know, that feeling of uh, belonging and being needed and, and being of service is, is it's a thing of the past right now. And all he can do is use his powers to make it so people can stomach him, people can tolerate him, people can be in his presence. It's, I mean, it's, it's an equal, it's equally beautiful and pathetically sad. And, um, like I said, Segovia killed it, murdered it. Beautiful, beautiful scene. Now next, you know, we zoomed in. Now we're zooming out. And we see that Grey Crow has taken aim at Manuel, and he's about to blow his brains out. And he's stopped by Quanan. And now, this is another, yet another beautiful scene here. Grey Crow, from the very start, has been this odd mix of, like, argumentative and accepting... In his own perception and fate I've said it before he was He's very clearly the heart and soul of our Twisted team here And he kind of identifies himself as being loyal And as mentioned, loyal almost to a fault But at the same time It's like he's just had his ass kicked You know, he's been beaten into submission here He seems to have accepted That everyone else seems to view him as a violent sociopath Like... He's trying to change how he's perceived. Kinda. Right? It's almost like he himself is struggling with feelings of futility. It's like he just doesn't have the strength to fight back against how people view him. Even though he knows that they're wrong. You know, they, he knows that, that he isn't 
this lunatic that he's viewed as, but he just doesn't have the strength, the energy, or the interest to fight back anymore. It's heartbreaking, and this scene plays that to a T. Now here, he's asked why he's going to kill Manuel by, by Quanan here, and John's answer is that, you know, whether he or anybody else likes it or not, this is his nature. He can't fight nature, he can't change it. He's not going to deny his nature, because after all, well, that would be disrespecting their sacred land. Krakoa says to be you. And uh, Psylocke says, maybe don't worry so much about Krakoa, and instead maybe worry about me. She's asking him not to do this. She's asking him to, to be what she knows he can be. And, uh, I mean, god damn, this is, <laughs> this is such a good book. Uh, next... Wild Child at the Healing Gardens here, another heartbreaking scene. Here we have Cecilia Reyes trying to convince him to take his meds. And we've seen this scene play out before. And, well, when it when we did see it, it didn't go too well for the doc. And here Reyes, she seems like just exhausted. She's tired of making this argument here. She's tired of dealing with Wild Child. And she's like, you know what? We both know how this scene's going to end. How about I just toss your pills... We tell, tell everyone you're taking them. No one will be any the wiser. But before she can finish her thought, Kyle willingly takes his meds. And uh, just, like, uh, just like a few other people in this book here, it's as though he lost his will to fight. He takes his pills, he goes, lays down, stares against the wall, and uh, it's heartbreaking. It really, really is. From here, we head to the East Domiciles, where Havoc is approached by Cyclops to talk about what Cyclops has been digging into regarding the Hellions' recent trip to Brooklyn. Of course, that's that whole arcade thing, the, the chimeras. We, we were there. We were there. Now, we don't know exactly what Cyclops knows. All we do know is that he's not terribly pleased by what he's found out. Now, that's not the only reason he's here to talk, though, because he is here to give his little brother a gift for serving his time with the Hellions. And that gift, as if it hasn't been spoiled for everyone, is the resurrected Maddie Pryor. Now, when Havoc and Maddie are reunited, we see that Maddie is wearing that, like, weird janitorial-looking jumpsuit <laughs> like she used to wear back when she hung out with the X-Men back in the long ago. And then things get weirder. Uh, now, Havoc... I mean, oh, this is a great scene, too. Uh, I mean, I... I, I I guess I'd rather gush than, than you know, slam a book, but um, I feel like maybe I'm gushing a little too much here. You'll have, to, you'll have to tell me. Havoc giddily, giddily tells her that he's been lobbying for her resurrection. I don't know if he's trying to ingratiate himself to her or just, like, remind her that they have a special bond, but, well, this uh, revelation doesn't quite land the way Alex thought it would. You see, he's like, hey, I've had your back since since you passed. I've been here stomping and, and lobbying, and I'm, I'm trying to get you back. Maddie's reaction to this is visible annoyance. And she comments how, like, well, wow, I've been brought back at the women of another summer's. You know, like, she's still, she's still a tool, you know, to be used. Now, she asks why it was his wants that were considered instead of her own. As if to say, maybe she didn't want to come back, or at least not come back this way. And as we've covered this book here, we've talked quite a bit about Maddie, and we've talked quite a bit about her agency, right? She's never asked for any of this, any of this. Going back to her first appearance, she's never asked for any of it. 
her initial creation, her deaths, her rebirths. Uh, I mean, she's been nothing more than a tool. And here again, well, she's definitely in the role of a pawn. And I mean, good God, I mean, this, this book is everything a comic book ought to be. And we'll talk more about that uh, on the other end here. Now, from here, like, she immediately snaps back to a more docile mood. It's, like, very, very strange here, but Alex doesn't question it. Like, she, like, snaps at him at first, like, hey, you know, great, you know, the summers are controlling me yet again, I'm being used as a pawn yet again. And then she's like, oh, oh, never mind all that. And he's like, hey, you want to go out for a drink? And she's like, sure. <laughs> it's, it's just, the it's, mm, <laughs> it's good. Now we close out this scene with Maddie taking a peek into a mirror and seeing the Goblin Queen staring back at her. And of course, that's not to be confused with the brand new Goblin Queen over in Amazing Spider-Man who's already causing speculators to lose their pea-sized minds. Next up, the White Palace. Now this feels like it could be a setup for Immortal X-Men here. We've got Magneto and Emma having a chat about a certain strain of Quiet Council cancer. And that cancer is Nathaniel Essex. Now, at that very moment, we shift over to the bar Sinister, where we see our main man tinkering with some mutant DNA. He's got Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Storm, Nightcrawler, Wolverine. That's just the ones that we can see. So, we know he knows how to make mutants. We've seen the Chimera stuff happen at Arcade's old base, the murder world there. So what could possibly be next? Well, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that on the other end. But first, our wrap-up here. Now, this is Grey Crow and Psylocke sitting on a Krakoan beach. Now, John tells her that all it took was a single look from her for him to know that he would never, ever be the same. They join hands, and they watch as the sun sets over the horizon. We wrap with a mostly blank quote page where Nightcrawler assures us that healing is possible after trauma. And, well, that's about as beautiful a bow as we can put on this very, very special book. Next episode, we're going to be talking about uh, X-Force, the last issue of X-Force before the break. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to come back as a new number one. It wouldn't surprise me if it did, but um, it is the last issue before it goes on a, I want to say, two- or three-month hiatus. So uh, we'll cover that next time, but for now, well, let's talk about Hellions. Um, I feel like I've already said a lot of what I wanted to say during the synopsis here, but... um, you know, I feel like Wells is uh, living up to his name here because I'm sitting here and I'm welling up a little bit because this was such... Oh, God, man, this was a great book. This was a great book. I'm going to miss it dearly. And, um, wow. Uh, let, let me start with my only complaint, okay? My only complaint here is that Steven Segovia didn't provide all of the art for this issue. That's not to say that Z. Carlos is a bad artist. Not a bad artist at all. But there is something just inarguably special about Segovia's work, especially on this book. And I would have loved to see some of the facials he would have delivered during the trial scene. Uh, Z. Carlos, uh, more of a cartoony artist. Not not to say that Segovia isn't, uh, you know, cartoony, because there, there is a tinge of cartooniness to it. But, um, I mean, just the facials we had with Empath, the facials we had with Scal... With, I keep wanting to call him Scalp Hunter. I've never wanted to call him Scalp Hunter. I don't know why I keep going to that now. Uh, Grey Crow. Uh, the scene... The, the, the facials of these characters in the latter half of the book here, nothing short of spectacular. And, um, 
you know, I'm never a proponent for silent books, and I'm certainly not, you know, suggesting that this should have been a silent book, but if this book accidentally shipped without any of the words, uh, the Segovia pages, I think, could have carried themselves because that's just how strong these reactions were. It was amazing, amazing stuff here. So that is my only complaint about this book. Um, Story-wise, murdered it. <laughs> they murdered it. Um, let's let's break it down a little bit here. I, like I said, I already talked about a lot of what I want to talk about, but... Let's, uh, let's draw, like, a, a finer line under it here. Um, we'll start with Maddie. Of course, Maddie has been a huge talking point uh, for our Hellions visits. Um, she's still a tool. And I, I you know, I, I mean tool as in something to be used, right? When the last we saw her, she was crying out that she wanted to be a real girl, right? She wanted to be known as having lived. And even in Resurrection, she's not a real girl. Right? She's not a real person. She's still... And she knows this. She's just a toy in someone else's toy box. She's, you know, being used. And um, it's, uh, it, it's, it really is heartbreaking. Uh, we don't know where this Maddie is from. We do know that, uh, you know, there are older backups, right? From the art, we might think that she's straight out of the outback. But, um, you know, that'll remain to be seen, Right? It was during the Outback run where she, you know, evolved into the Goblin Queen or was, you know, realized she was the Goblin Queen or just became the Goblin Queen. So maybe we're going to be getting a retelling of that in in a way, right? A, like a time-displaced version of the first Inferno. I wonder what they'd call it. I don't think we can use that name right away, but um, it's very, very interesting and a lot of interesting food for thought. And... Um, Let's talk about how, you know, she is being, she's being a tool, used as a tool or a toy or a pawn here. It's worth noting that Alex here is also perhaps being manipulated. Uh, you see, he's starting to see the cracks in the Quiet Council armor. He, he goes to call Emma Frost out for manipulating him and uh, playing off his trauma and perhaps taking advantage of a... Uh, Maybe not so much a mental weakness, but a mental, um, hmm, trying to think of the right word here, because it's not a weakness so much as it is a, you know, like if you're playing a video game and you use, like, you use lightning against a water-based character, (laughs) it's like their weakness. This is kind of zeroing in on a uh, potential weakness in Alex here. And he was going to call her out in front of the council, but he's kind of forgot all about it now, huh? You know, he's taken his eyes off the prize to pine over Maddie again. He isn't all that concerned with Emma and Empath amping up his violent tendencies or behaviors for their own benefit. He is just as much a tool as Maddie. And I I don't know where they're going to wind up in the Destiny of X uh, landscape here. Um, I'm trying to think of where they could wind up. What books do we even have anymore? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I hope that this isn't the last that we see of either of them. Speaking of which, Nanny and Orphan Maker. Now, just last episode, we uh, read the solicit for Sabretooth number two, right? There it said that five new mutants have arrived in the hole, and when I started reading this issue, um, I made the immediate assumption that it would be the uh, entire Hellions team joining him, minus, you know, the new great Captain Psylocke. You know, we have Grey Crow, Havoc, Wild Child, Nanny, and Orphan Maker. Five characters, I figured, boom, those are the ones that are going to show up in Sabretooth. 
Well, looks like that's not the case, but I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest to see Nanny and Pete show up in that book. And in fact, you know, the me of a few years ago can't believe I'm saying this. I, I hope they do. <laughs> I never, ever in a million years thought I'd be looking forward to a possible Nanny and Orphan Maker appearance. But uh, this book is, an, is, a, uh, is a miracle worker. <laughs> this book has uh, redeemed so many characters and made them made them work. You know, I mean, uh, look at Psylocke. Now, part of me thinks, and will always think, that Psylocke has been given such a prominent role, perhaps due to some political pressure, right? And rather than try to make her an actual viable character, most writers fall back on the, well, you know, she and Betsy had the body swap issue. And that's all we ever get. Here, though, Wells has... Is rehabilitated the right word? I mean, because she was a character that never worked until right now, so she was never habilitated in the first place. Wells has been able to make her work, and he's made her a complex character, and uh, really made her a headliner in her own right, which, like I said, this book's a miracle worker, isn't it? Uh, Grey Crow. Grey Crow. Um, I think I've said everything I wanted to say about him during our synopsis here. Uh, you know, heart and soul of the book, for sure. Uh, loyal to his teammates, kind of identifying as being loyal to his uh, to his teammates here. So beaten by life that he's, like, willing to play the role that, that has been, like, thrusted upon him, at least uh, via perception of those around him here, where it's like, yeah, you think I'm just some, some nut? Fine, I'll just be some nut, you know? <laughs> that's that's really all it takes. He's just been so beaten. And, I mean, we, we we don't really talk so much about his original stint as a marauder here and how cloning was a huge thing and how he may have, uh, you know, disassociative sort of things here, like what is the real John Grey Crow? And um, I think we're well on our way to establishing him as, you know, just as strong a character as any. And now we know that uh, Psylocke will be part of the new Marauders book. I only hope that Grey Crow gets some sort of a role there. You know, I mean, Steve Orlando will be writing it, so maybe I don't want that. But uh, I don't want him to just fade into the background because uh, Wells did... This is the Miracle Worker book. He has made John Grey Crow into a character I want to know more about and I want to read more about. So uh, hopefully... This doesn't spell the end for him or for uh, for Wildchild, you know. Wildchild is another very interesting character here. He's gone through plenty of changes during this 18-issue run here. He learned that he's an alpha, then he wasn't an alpha. He kind of had uh, a more rational side for a bit post-resurrection and kind of going back on that. It's been It's been a heck of a ride for him as well, and I hope that he doesn't fade into the background either. Uh, Let's look at Empath very, very briefly. Empath is a very complicated... I mean, these are all very, very complicated characters here who I don't think have ever been depicted in quite this way. Uh, That one scene, that that, uh, epilogue scene with Empath, phenomenal. I really can't say too much about it. I feel like I've already droned on a bit too long about it. Um, He... It's a very, very strong arc for him here, Um, where when we met him in this book anyway, it's just, ah, he's he's a dickhead. And that was was all it really, he's like, okay, this is a more psychotic version of Quentin Quire. You know, this is 
the Hellions Quentin Choir. Basically, he's going to die all the time. It's going to be a comedy bit. And it's become so much more than that. And we can actually see that he is he is someone who who needs people, despite, you know, uh, trying to exhibit that he doesn't. And it's uh, another character I hope does not fade into the background. Uh, the epilogue did take place at the Academus Habitat. Maybe he'll show up in New Mutants? I hope so. But uh, really, who can say? Let's, uh, let's wrap this up with a little bit of a discussion on uh, Mr. Sinister here. I'm very, very quick to toss his team under the bus. Okay? We know this. Uh, we know he's got his Sinister Secrets. I mean, that's been a whole, you know, corner of this uh, post-Hoxpox um, landscape. Now, look at how calculating he is here, right? Um, I'm starting to feel like Sassy Sinister is just a facade. You know? Um... I think a lot of us, when he turned sassy, kind of questioned, like, this just doesn't feel right. Wells, of course, made it work. And, I mean, the other, um, the other Hox Pox, Docs, Rock Sox writers have also made it work here. Sassy Sinister has been an uh, unexpected highlight of this era here in that I expected very little of it. And it's turned into a mostly um, very entertaining uh, bit of business here. And I'm starting to think it's fake. You know, I, I could be completely wrong. But I think he's acting hes acting a fool to maybe make others underestimate him. And to this point, it's worked. Until, you know, Emma and uh, Eric have their little talk about the Krakoan cancer that is uh, Nathaniel Essex. I am very, very excited and curious to see... How this plays out here, because I'm like I'm, I'm thinking that this is this might just be a put on, and I, I kind of hope it is. Uh, not that I dislike Sassy Sinister, because I, I I've absolutely uh, come to adore this take on the character, but it is just so different from the Sinister of old that I don't know. It feels like this could be this could be a put on here. I, I think if this is going to bear fruit, it will bear fruit in Immortal X Men. Uh, though it is worth noting that's being written by Kieran Gillen, who I may be mistaken, but I think he was responsible for Sinister's turn toward the sassy in the first place. So perhaps he had an end game in mind all along. Maybe I'm just you know completely wrong, but uh, whatever the case, I am totally and excitedly there for it. But um, I think. That's about all I have to say about this issue, about this run. I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, Hellions in the future because uh, this, is, this is a hell of a book. This is a hell of a book. This has been my favorite book of the past several years, maybe decade. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that good. It's that good. If you haven't been reading Hellions and you've only been listening to me spout on about it, Give it a shot. I mean, uh, most of it will be on Unlimited. So if you if you have Unlimited or if you do the free trial, you could probably read through the entire thing. Um, as we talked about uh, last episode, there is an omnibus version coming out with all 18 issues. I might I might double dip on it just to have it on my shelf because that's, that's how special of a book this is. And that's something I, I don't say lightly. Um, when... When the comics industry changed to this, uh, you know, trade-heavy sort of deal, I kind of uh, rolled my eyes and, and kind of, you know, thumbed my nose at it like the 
you know, elite jerk that I am, I compared it to um, what people's DVD racks were starting to look like. You know, when you'd look at someone's DVD rack or, or just video rack, I suppose, you'd see all like the very special movies, movies that people love. It's it's the best of the best, the stuff you want to watch over and over and over again. And then when DVDs became more mainstream, it was like, oh, well, here's the first season of some show. Here's the fifth season of some show. So you'd start to look at people's uh, DVD racks and it was like two or three, you know, movies that were classics that you'd want to watch over and over again. And then like... Uh, 11 seasons of Friends and 8 seasons of this and 12 seasons of that and it just became like uh, it became like an archive rather than a collection and that's how people's comic shelves are starting to look it was like you'd have those you know evergreens that you'd want to read over and over again Dark Phoenix, Watchmen, uh, you know Mouse, stuff like that and then it's like and here's you know Cable and Deadpool Volume 3 it's like what? <laughs> it just didn't seem... It didn't seem like something, like an evergreen sort of thing. Hellions, I'd put up there with an evergreen. Hellions is deserved, is it has a deserved spot on, on most um, bookshelves. I, I would wholeheartedly recommend checking it out if you haven't already or if you haven't in a while and you maybe, maybe lapsed on it. Give it a go. Give it a go because there has been some tonal shifts in this book throughout the uh, you know couple of years it's been around. Early on, I think a lot of people may have written it off as being, you know, the the X-Men's version of Suicide Squad. There was gore. There was a little bit of gore. It was a little bit, um, you know, grim and gritty in, in a way. Uh, but it, it always had heart. It always had this underlying heart to it, which um, ultimately couldn't be denied. And here we are, you know, on the other end, and... Uh, Boy, you know, when when you wrap up a book and all you want is more of that book, I think that's like the best compliment you can give it. So um, thank you, Zeb Wells. Thank you, Stephen Segovia, for giving us this book, for um, just really exploring some bits of this uh, Krakoan landscape that that I didn't think uh, were necessary to explore. And when we did... Well, they made it work, and they took these characters that I written off, I wrote off originally or initially as the LOL random Alvaro team. You know, it's like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had Nanny on an X-Men team? To which, 18 months ago, I would have said, no, <laughs> that's not funny, that's not cool. And here we are, where a scene with Nanny in it almost made me cry. <laughs> it's, uh, it's something else. A very special book, and... Um, at the risk of repeating myself for the 85th time, I'll just leave it there. Hellions is a book you should read. Hellions is a book that you should have in your lives. You will not be sorry. But that's where we'll leave it for today. Now, if anybody out there would like to talk about anything, Hellions included or especially, please feel free to find me. Feel, feel free to reach out. I am very, very easy to find. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. On Instagram at 90sxmen. You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. For the complete audio archives, including 17 more episodes of Hellions, you can check out chrisandreggie.podbean.com or just search for Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill or X-Lapsed on any 
podcast aggregation application, or search engine. Finally, there is the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed for a lot of exclusive content, behind-the-scenes stuff, and uh, hmm, maybe we'll do a little Hellions after-party there somewhere down the line here. Maybe do a little round table sort of situation. Uh, let me know if you'd be interested in something like that, because I think uh, there's, there's plenty, plenty to talk about still. But I think that's where I'll put a pin in it for now. I'd like to thank you all so much for uh, joining me for this gush fest today. I truly, truly appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>